0: This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, conversations and Q&A about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 39 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and this, ladies and gentlemen, is the 2018 Swift by Sundell holiday special. And of course, a holiday special means that we need to have some very special guests on the show as well, which we do. First up, our first guest. He made a sneak appearance this fall on the Rapid Fire Interviews episode. He's an iOS developer at Lyft, the creator of SwiftLint, and the co-host of the Swift Unwrapped podcast. Welcome to the show, Mr. JP Simard. Hi, John. Really happy to be back on. Yeah, it was uh, great to have you on back then, but as we promised, you know, you would be back for a proper episode. So here we are. And of course, uh, for our second guest, we thought who better to join us than JP's fantastic co host of Swift Unwrapped? He's an iOS developer at PlanGrid and the founder of Swift Weekly Brief. Welcome to the show, Mr. Jesse Squires.
1: Hey, John. Uh, Happy to be here. Thanks for having us on.
0: Yeah, it's really great to have both of you guys on. So uh, how are you doing? Are you in full preparation for the holidays?
2: Yeah, I'm definitely in, in full holiday spirit here. And I'm excited that we finally get to do our, our crossover episode of uh, Sundell by Unwrapped. Yeah,
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because Sundell Unwrapped doesn't sound that great, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, same here. Um, things are winding down at work for the most part. And I'll be taking off shortly. To, uh, spend some time with, uh, friends and family. So yeah, doing well. That's perfect. So you guys
0: are doing some really great work with Swift Unwrapped, which is an excellent podcast. And if you're not yet subscribed to that one, make sure to check it out after you finish this episode, of course. <laughs> so I am curious to hear how did this show kind of uh, come
2: to be? Before we dive into that, I just want to say, like, we are also fans of uh, the Swift by Sundell show. And I, I really love how in many ways, you know, the shows are kind of complimentary. Um, plus like there's so much happening in, in the Swift space that there could probably be another dozen podcasts that look at a different aspect of the community or the language or the process. And, and there would still be a very good, thriving, uh, community there that doesn't even like compete with each other right and it's just complementary absolutely
0: one thing I've definitely learned since I started kind of creating content for the community is that there is so much demand that no one no single person or single team can fill that demand like there's just so much variety in our in our community and people want to kind of learn in different ways and also, hear about different angles and aspects of something. So, definitely, I, I totally agree. It's so great to have so many people uh, creating content for, for our community.
2: Yeah. And as for the question, you know, how would the show start? Um, well, you know, Jesse and I knew each other from the community and we had seen, you know, quite a few podcasts and even just general content tended to, everything that tended to touch on Swift tended to be um, more from an angle of Apple development, right? So whether iOS development, Mac development, and then Swift happened to be kind of an implementation detail. You know, it's the language that um, people used for for these platform development, but there was nothing really focused on the language itself. And that's where Jesse and I started chatting and we realized that uh, it could be interesting to talk about the the language itself and uh, more that perspective rather than um, coming at it from an Apple developer's point of view.
1: Yeah, and at the time, uh, I was still uh, doing the newsletter uh, weekly, and we thought it would be an interesting project to basically take that into uh, podcast form
0: yeah absolutely and what I really love about swift unwrapped is uh you do such a great job of covering swift evolution and like J- Jp mentioned is like that's why uh, all these shows that exist are very complementary because on this show for example we don't really talk so much about swift evolution so uh, I'm really curious to to hear kind of how how do you follow swift evolution do you kind of follow it very closely and how do you kind of um, feed, feed that information kind of into your show.
1: Yeah, I, I used to follow it uh, very closely um, when I first started the newsletter. And uh, that just kind of happened uh, organically for me. Uh, originally, I was just writing about things on my personal blog. And then I spun up the Swift Weekly Brief uh, site and newsletter uh once um there was a lot of interest in that uh from the community and then kept that going for a while. Uh and it's currently being run by uh Boz who's doing like a great job. Uh now I did it for I guess two years um and then um kind of asked the community to take it over. Um but uh, yeah, in the beginning, it was like a very organic thing for me because uh, I was just super interested in uh, what was happening and I felt like it was useful to, uh, to write about. And um, now the Swift Weekly Brief is pretty much my main source for like, keeping track of proposals and what's happening and what's coming up. Isn't that amazing that you kind of started something, you started a project,
0: you kind of bootstrapped it, you ran it for 2 years, and now that same very project is being run by other people and it's your main source of information. <laughs> right? Right.
1: <laughs> I mean, that is honestly like a, an open source project creators like uh Dream Come True that you can like start something and like Uh, successfully hand it off and then still get the benefits from that project without being uh, super involved. I I am still involved uh, a little bit, um,
2: but very, very uh, minor compared to before yeah for those of you listening you can't see jesse right now but he's like lounging on a beach chair sipping a pina colada <laughs> with sunglasses and he's just retired at this point right. he's oh yeah other people are write swift weekly brief for him
0: yeah he's done his he's done his career he's gotten the lifetime achievement award you
2: know he's uh he's done his duties <laughs> now it's time to just relax right <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> uh, it's it's funny that jesse mentions that Swift Weekly Brief is his main source of news, and it, really for me, that's been the case for, for a while. But I have an interesting uh, workflow, I guess, if you want to say, uh, where I don't necessarily follow Swift Evolution directly, but because the Swift Weekly Brief um, website is managed in GitHub in the open, uh, and there are there's a GitHub issue that gets open for every article. Uh, that's supposed to go out. I just subscribe to that GitHub repository for notifications, and that—that that means that anyone who's contributing to this weekly weekly brief can post things basically as they happen, uh, anything of note, and then you know you're you're notified instantly uh, without necessarily having a, a torrential uh, fire hose of information. And then, so I kind of just read those notifications, and then every week or two weeks when the articles come out, I just read uh, the article as kind of like a recap of everything that was posted in that GitHub issue, just so that it like, really sinks into to my memory. Um, and, uh, and that can give you a really good overview of what's happening in the community. Yeah, that sounds really great.
0: Uh, it's almost like a Swift breaking news, right? So when you get that notification from GitHub, it's like this is happening right now. Right now, someone is adding this proposal to Swift evolution.
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I actually have a similar uh, workflow um, because I also like am still involved in the like GitHub repo maintenance and subscribe to notifications, so I see those come through. Uh, and one thing I, I forgot actually is the you know the Swift forums like. Improved things quite a bit, I think. And I get, uh, I think, weekly digest emails uh, from the forums. And so that is pretty useful too to see, uh, at least at a high level, like what topics are being discussed the most.
0: Yeah. One thing that was very common that people kind of complained about or that they were concerned about is. When, when there was the uh, mailing list for Swift Evolution was that it was very much like this fire hose of information, like you mentioned, JP. Uh, do you feel like the, the forum has improved
2: uh, this in this regard and that is now easier to follow? Oh, by a thousand times for sure, with the ability to subscribe to specific subsections, which, you had previously with a different mailing list because there was never just the one Swift mailing list. There were I don't know maybe a dozen or so you know where you focused on compiler internals versus uh, the uh, core libs projects, uh, server stuff, etc. And plus Swift Evolution. But now you can really subscribe to very fine grain focus areas of the forums or just a single post. Or just post by a specific person or, or that digest, which is extremely useful. I also subscribe to that. What would you say? Like, what is the kind of
0: good, what is a good level for someone who is kind of just a Swift developer working on Swift code, uh, building apps? What is like a good level of involvement to have in Swift evolution? Uh, like obviously, like listening to your show, uh, getting the Swift weekly brief, maybe looking at the forums. Uh, but what kind of level would you recommend that someone who is, uh, who is curious, but maybe doesn't have a lot of time to invest? Like, where do you recommend that people
2: start? Yeah, I'd strongly recommend just, uh, reading the Swift Weekly Brief, um, articles as they come out. It's only every two weeks and it takes about two or three minutes to read through it. Um, longer if you actually click into the source, uh, source links, but, uh, that will give you a very high level overview of like the main things that are happening in the community. Um, and if if you don't even have that amount of time um there are some really good collection of kind of what's new in swift x that people like paul hudson do uh i believe you do right. um and uh ola begemann as well um, so th- those are some good sources to stay on top of like what's available. Yeah, absolutely. That playground that
0: uh, Ola made uh, was really, really great when Swift 4 came out. And there was a lot of, especially with string changes, like just to dive into that playground and try them out for yourself.
2: Yeah, there's something that you learn by by seeing concrete examples that's hard to, uh, to get a sense for when you're reading the raw proposal that goes into all these little details, but doesn't give you a feel for it as much. So both of you, you've done quite a lot of work for the Swift
0: community, Uh, not only like running your show, running these newsletters and uh, doing lots of open source projects and things like that. Uh, What is your kind of main motivation for working uh, with things for the community? Like, what is it that appeals to you about kind of open source work and building things for the community?
1: For me, it's something that I would be doing anyway, and I feel like I might as well just share uh, what I'm doing publicly, um, you know, there's no reason for uh, a lot of the code I write. These, you know, the open source projects that I maintain, there's no reason for that to not be uh, publicly available and open. Um, and same with, you know, the newsletter. You know, just started as like some some blog posts, and uh, for me, I would rather just share that information. um, And I think providing that access for free is uh, just very beneficial, especially to people starting out. Yeah, it's a really great way to kind of fill those gaps that you
0: wish were filled when you got started, right? Sure. So when you got started and you wish like this, this component existed or something like that, that you can actually build those and contribute those back.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly how uh, some of my projects started. I needed a certain component. It didn't exist. Uh, I built it for you know the app I was working on and then extracted that and put it on GitHub. Um, it, it does take some time to do that. Uh, I definitely had more time back then than I do now yeah. <laughs> uh, to do those sorts of things. But I think... Uh, it's still worth doing, and in almost every project, someone uh, has gotten involved and helped make it better. Uh, or I've just made a lot of uh, good friends through open source that I otherwise you know wouldn't have made. So
2: everything that Jesse said resonates well. Um, you know the the fact that uh, why not do things in the open? The fact that uh, things get better once they're in the open people sometimes significantly smarter than you are (laughs) go in and and improve things in ways that you never would have dreamed of. Um, I've definitely had that feeling several times with some of my open source work, where it's like someone comes in and uh, they come up with this amazing solution to a problem that I didn't know I had. It just makes everything so much better and uh, everyone benefits, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, what what Jesse said uh, about kind of having more time back then than you do now. Like, I I think that's probably a very common theme in open source. And in terms of the motivation for me, I, I, you know, I I think just like earlier we were talking about content creation and how everyone can, can have their little area, their little flavor or their, their sound, as we say in music, you know, like everyone has their personality uh, or their voice. Yeah. Um, the same thing goes with open source where you can choose to focus in an area that interests you. Maybe you don't get to, uh, work in a certain platform or, um, in a certain way in your day job, but it's still something that, that you enjoy doing. So you do it a little bit on nights and weekends sort of thing. And that was very much the case, um, for me with tooling. Uh, and so that's why I chose to, to do more of the open source work around you know, linters or documentation generators or some of the lower level, like YAML parsing and th- things like that, uh, where at work I can fo- focus more on building apps. And then in my spare time, I can kind of exercise this other part of my brain. Um So it's a good way to to stay fresh on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Creating open source and content and these kind of things for learning is really, really great. And like you say, like. In your day-to-day, depending on kind of what kind of app you work on, chances are that you're not working with, you know, exactly the hottest new framework and the thing that you really want to, you know, learn and get into. And for me, that those were things like, for example, game development. And like one of my first open pro- open source projects was uh, Unbox, which was a, you know, JSON parser and it wasn't like in my day-to-day building a json parser kind of came up but it was something i could use in my day-to-day i can use it to build the apps that i was working on and i think often you can find those kind of tangential kind of connection points with your uh, hobby projects or with things you do with for open source that you can then really benefit from uh, as you're building apps and as you are working on your day job yeah those are really good tips Cool. So uh, during this holiday special, uh, we want to use a little bit of a different format. So usually this show is quite focused around either the guest and kind of their topics and what they've been working on, or about the Q&A. So we have people submitting questions for the show that we answer uh, here on the episode. Uh, but since this is a holiday special, we're going to mix things up a little bit, just like we did last year. So this time we have brought different topics that we want to discuss, and we're going to discuss each of them in turn and then see how it goes. And then at the end we have a little bit of a special topic which we'll save to the end. Uh, but I'm going to kick it off here and uh, I want to ask you, uh, what has been the biggest way that you've changed the way you write Swift code during this year? So what kind of thing in 2018, like what kind of framework or new technique that you've learned or something else that you've started adopting has made like the biggest impact on how you write your Swift code?
1: Yeah, for me, uh I would say not necessarily changing the way I write. Swift code specifically, but changing the way that I write code in general uh, from the perspective of iOS development. I think Swift opens up a much broader uh, design space than Objective-C. And Swift has uh, a lot of features that Objective-C lacks. And I the way I solve problems now is just uh, a lot different uh, than before, uh, and I'm using a lot more functional programming in my code, um, and like the the projects and features that I'm working on. There's still plenty of non-functional aspects, just because this is still iOS development, and you know the the frameworks that we have are not functional, but that's fine. Uh, and it goes to, you know, there's, there's been different uh, talks in the community about this, having this uh, kind of functional core and imperative shell. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, that's kind of the, the style I've adopted in many ways. So you have this model layer. Um, and you know, maybe some, some other layers around that, that are purely functional in a lot of ways. And then you kind of hook that up to UI kit imperatively and, for me, that's just been very beneficial.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So,
1: as a concrete example,
0: you might have like a table view data source, for example. Obviously, you implement that in like an object oriented way, but then that table view data source might talk to your model using functional programming concepts like first class functions and these kind of things.
1: Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, and then the other big thing uh, for me, uh, re- like very recently, some specific features that I've been working on at PlanGrid, um, writing unit tests for those uh, using um, the new random APIs. So generating a bunch of fake models for my unit tests. Um, I've been working on some different, uh, like sorting and filtering uh, UI for some features at PlanGrid, and so it's been super nice. Uh, to be able to generate a bunch of you know random models and then call shuffled on that or get a random element uh, out of an array uh, specifically for the use case of unit tests, um, as well as the case iterable uh, protocol on enums. Uh, yeah, all, all of these like uh, newer features, I guess they landed in Swift 4.2. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, have been... Uh, massively beneficial for me for uh, writing unit tests uh, for different things
0: yeah absolutely and do you use those kind of uh, random features do you use them to kind of prevent false positives and to kind of detect regressions and these kind of things uh yeah yeah exactly awesome and what about you jp what has been the biggest way you've changed your your way of working this year
2: um, I think you talked about this, uh, John, in a recent talk of yours, right? Where where you're talking about different architectures and how. Correct me, you know, with what I'm getting wrong, because uh, <laughs> sure, it's it's been a few a uh, few months since I saw the talk, but it, uh, the the gist that I got out of it anyway is that you know the best architecture is the one that works for you, and that sometimes you know putting labels or putting something in in a category or a box isn't necessarily. Uh, the right solution or maybe you have to you know the truth is a little grayer uh, would would that be accurate with what you were trying to say in your presentation
0: yeah absolutely like uh, the talk you're referring to is called uh, the lost art of system design and we'll put a link to it in the show notes uh, and yeah, just like you said, uh, the the gist of it is uh, that an architecture that you design specifically for your app using system design is usually a better fit than just taking something directly off the shelf and just applying it kind of blindly to your code base.
2: Yeah, I d- definitely agree with that. And I, I kind of bring it a little further where um, kind of setting one... Uh, kind of concrete framework for like a mental model, right. For, for a way to work, or you mentioned, you know, code patterns or uh, ways that we write codes that may have changed in 2018. Um, you know, there, there's no kind of one magic bullet when it, when it comes to any of this stuff. Uh, but there are a few things that, um, I have start, started doing a little bit more, I guess, in 2018. Um, and one is specifically uh, reactive programming. Oh nice. Um, and that's something that I've always been um, kind of a big proponent of in terms of uh, building things with a unidirectional data flow or uh, reactively. but concretely, um, in my day job at Lyft, I've been um, integrating more and more RX Swift into our code base. And specifically, just getting more familiar with some of the um, uh, Rx operators, for example, or um, different different operations that you can perform on streams of data, has really uh, doing that more concretely has opened up my my way of thinking in terms of representing um, data manipulation in a very semantic way, rather than doing it very imperatively. Uh, and again, this is kind of more of a, um more of a gray area, uh, you know, where I'm not saying that, you know, Rx is a silver bullet for anything, but right. uh just getting a little bit more exposure to it and um kind of getting my hands into it a little bit more has made me kind of identify maybe some of these um semantic operations that sometimes you do on data, it's similar to kind of what map and flat map and a lot of us um who use these kind of more uh, functional programming style methods from the Swift Center library have come to, to realize, you know, there are semantic operations that can, uh, occasionally, um, either make things a little bit more performant because you're not kind of re-implementing some of these patterns every time. So th- I, I'd say that's probably the, the biggest shift that I've had in 2018 It's just, uh, thinking a little bit more in terms of Rx.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really good one. And it's, it's funny about Rx because, um, this experience you're having right now, I think is very common where you start using it and it goes also for, you know, other kinds of functional reactive programming frameworks where you start learning more about these patterns and you're seeing the benefits. And, you know, it's, it's easy to just keep going and it's kind of hard to stop because you start wanting to apply it everywhere. And you're, you're also saying there that it is not a silver bullet, but, You know, once you kind of start seeing those elegant like chains of operations using maps and flat maps, it's, you know, you start to envision what if I wrote my whole app this way, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, and there are definitely projects that follow that mantra, right? And that say, um, you know, everything is a result and everything is a stream or everything lives as a first-class citizen in Rx. And I do think that that's a bridge too far in in a lot of situations. It goes back to what Jesse was saying with uh, functional core imperative shell. Yeah. uh,
1: So PlanGrid actually makes use of some reactive frameworks. Um, So we uh, use reactive Swift uh, and um, we have a framework that we wrote called reactive lists, uh, which is kind of our, like, functional core for uh, table views and collection views and just generating uh, all the boilerplate for that, um, for the data source and delegate methods. Cool. And that's not something necessarily new in 2018 for me, but uh, joining PlanGrid was, like, my first uh, exposure to uh, actually... A real world project that was um, using reactive programming. Uh, but I've enjoyed it a lot. I think sometimes you can get, um, sometimes it can be difficult to debug, um, depending on how f- f- deep you are in that chain.
0: Right. How many maps and flat maps into it you are.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, uh, but other than that, yeah, I think it's been uh, very beneficial to use um, and like a a great learning experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Especially in like more complex apps when you have like lots of different streams of data coming in using something like Rx or uh, Reactive Swift can be great tools in order to kind of unify all those signals and information into something you can just parse in a single place and kind of react to in your UI. So. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, and I know that, you know, these frameworks existed for Objective C, but I was always turned off by them because they felt so like bolted on to Objective C. They didn't feel very natural to me. Uh whereas in Swift, uh I feel like it's very fluid to to use these frameworks.
0: Yeah, absolutely, especially with the syntax, right? Where yes. before when we were using blocks and things like that, it was always like you always have to look up the syntax and yeah, now it's it's way easier to get started with these kind of things. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, I think my biggest change uh, kind of ties back a little bit to what Jesse said earlier, which is um, like some of Swift's newest language features. So uh, this year we've gotten things like automatic implementations of Codable, uh, of Equatable, Hashable. We've gotten uh, Case Iterable. And a lot of sources of boilerplate has really been eliminated if you know we use the latest Swift version. And I really embrace this to start making more of my models Equatable, uh, more of my enums, Case Iterable, and things like that to really enable some really nice APIs and to really fully embrace value types where before there was always like when you're writing a struct for example and you wanted to like write a unit test to verify you know some piece of data was loaded and you want to verify that that struct was correct you had to write all this boilerplate for equatable and things like that and now with that requirement gone and now with everything like fully automated um I I find myself embracing that more. And also uh, I've started to kind of adopt my code to really always be able to take advantage of that. So for example, uh, if I have some JSON structure that I'm parsing and that JSON file does not fully conform uh, to the same kind of format that I want to use in my code uh, I, I would rather kind of adapt my my underlying model code, maybe not the the code I expose as the API, but the underlying model representation to actually do match the JSON uh, in order to take advantage of those automated features because I feel like just removing that boilerplate really makes me so much more productive
1: yeah, same here um, so we've uh, or some things that i 've implemented uh, this year have made heavy use of uh, these features, and specifically with uh, Codable, you know, there there are, you know, these kind of escape hatches in the Codable APIs where you can provide custom key names and all of this to uh, you know, as a realization that the world is not perfect and you have right. <laughs> uh, le- you have these legacy JSON responses they're not going to map nicely to your structs, and so you can Hook into these customization seams, uh, but what I've found to be uh, much nicer is to just write a like raw response struct. So I get all of the generation for free, and then I can take that struct and use that to initialize something that is is better in the code that's like more public facing, and keep that uh, like raw response struct private. Um, and just not have to worry about any parsing code or any codable customization um, and just getting all of that for free. So yeah, that, that's been massive for me too. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. And
0: it also eliminates a whole suite of bugs, right? When you are diving in and you're doing your own JSON parsing, <laughs> yeah, when you yeah. can just take advantage of that compiler-checked code. It's just so much nicer. So yeah, big thumbs up for automatic generation of codable conformances. Super cool.
2: Yeah, there's like a common theme here with everything that we said, and that's you know, if you can reduce the amount of code that you can write yourself, uh, you'll really get a lot of good wins. Whether that's using an Rx operator that semantically does what you want instead of writing that implementation yourself, or whether that's uh using the compiler generated um codable or case iterable or equatable uh uh conformances, etc. Um, it it's really all in that in that spirit of doing less work and having fewer opportunities to shoot yourself in the foot more code more problems right <laughs> yeah you should put that
0: on a bumper sticker yeah absolutely all right j p so what have you got for us what's your topic
2: so uh John before the show asked us to to pick a topic that we wanted to to cover uh the three of us up here and one of the things that um I sometimes think about but we in the community don't often kind of articulate or talk about is the fact that Swift has this sort of duality of openness where um, there is actually a ton and there's so much that's being done in the open and there's often more than people realize, right? And by in the open, I mean the fact that um, Swift evolution is public facing and, and encourages contributions from, from the community, but also from, uh, the code standpoint, um people contribute pull requests or patches, uh tracking bugs, all this is done in the open, but the, also there's a ton of tooling that's done in the open. But ultimately, the way that most of us experience Swift is via Xcode, or it is uh on Apple platforms where we're we're deploying these these applications. And so there's an interface there where <clears throat> Uh, things do need to hook in to some closed source components, whether that's closed source Apple frameworks uh, like Foundation or UIKit or AppKit, et cetera, uh, whether it's closed source IDEs like Xcode, or whether it's closed source operating systems like macOS or iOS. Yeah. And so... There is this kind of junction, and there's also this line where I'm sure the Swift Core team and and Apple in general kind of needs to figure out, like, every time they work in Swift, um, how much of this is open, how much of this is closed, Uh, things like um, Apple framework overlays, right? How much of this should be just kind of decided by the teams who work on that versus... Uh, done in the open. And the same thing goes for like IDE integration, right? Where um, there's a ton that's done in the open where you have source kit, uh, you have the Swift compiler, but ultimately there's a lot of functionality that's built uh, directly into the IDEs, right? So, you know, where does that live? Um, so I just wanted to kind of open that up as an open discussion of asking you guys, what do you think about this duality of Swift, and uh do you do you agree with where Apple tends to draw that line, and maybe what are some of the pros and cons of doing it in this way?
0: yeah, that's a really, really good question
2: yeah, I think this has like massively
1: improved over the years um i you know as more and more components are uh open sourced um and more libraries are just like started uh, from the beginning in the open, uh, like Swift syntax and uh, LSP, language server protocol. Yeah. You know, in the earlier years, I felt like it was very, we pretty much only had the language uh, being open source um, with maybe a few exceptions. And I felt like there was a lot more um that was kept internal to apple uh but now i feel like that um is is diminishing uh, fairly quickly um, especially this year with all the projects also the the swift neo stuff yeah um it, it just feels like a lot of open source projects are coming out of apple now it's like they they created that GitHub org, and there's just a, the Swift repo and uh, the relevant uh, LLVM forks, um, and that was pretty much it. And now if you go to their GitHub org, there is just a ton of stuff.
0: Yeah, it's like the floodgates have opened, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everyone go open source stuff. Yay, let's do it. Yeah, so right. that's, it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, you can definitely, from the outside, you can kind of see a little bit of a cultural shift happening. And maybe this culture already existed as kind of like a subculture within Apple, because mm-hmm. you also have to remember that Apple is a very big company, right? So it's not like... You know, everyone thinks the exact same way in the in the whole company. Uh, but it really feels a bit like, you know, from the outside, there's this, this shift going on where, like you mentioned, Jesse, like more projects are not only open source, like, ta-da, look, it's open source, it's already finished, but they're actually started and developed in the open, which is a big difference.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I think there's been a massive shift over the past year, maybe two years. Yeah, what's interesting
2: is if you contrast this with, uh, you know, prior to Swift being open sourced, and there were a lot of discussions in the community about, well, you know, Apple has promised that they will open source Swift, but how will they do it, right? Will yeah. they kind of throw a tarball over a wall onto opensource.apple.com and uh, kind of not talk about it? Uh, And and, and there were even lively debates as to whether or not Apple would even ever consider posting stuff on GitHub. And fast forward to where we are now, where uh, there are new projects almost every month that come out. Um, There's probably like uh, three or four dozen open source projects on on GitHub.com slash Apple right now.
0: Yeah, it's super cool. Uh, But I think you hit the nail on the head there, JP, with... That The fact that we have all these open source projects and that Swift itself is open source and it has an open source driven kind of design process, all that is really amazing. But we still have this kind of sometimes a little bit awkward middle layer, which is how Swift integrates into the SDK and into UIKit and all the tools that we use every day to build apps. Because, for example, one, one interesting thing was in Swift 4, for example, there was this promise of very few source breaking changes. And that was true for the most part when it came to the language. And I'm and i sure there was a ton of effort going into actually making that happen in a backwards compatible way, because there was some really major language features being introduced. But then you open up your Xcode project, and as a user of Swift, you see 1,000 compile errors, right? Because even though Swift the language didn't change, all the kind of translation layers between the SDK and Swift, they ended up changing quite a lot. So I think that that kind of middle step there is is kind of what you're referring to, right? When you're talking about that, you know, that divide that you have that closed source world and the open source world, and there's this kind of bridge between them.
2: Yeah, that's definitely one of the manifestations of it. And, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to come off, uh, you know, negative in any way, because I, I think... Um, I, I'm blown away by the level of openness there is today at all. I just thought it was interesting to focus on, on that interface between the open and closed and, um, just to bring a little bit more light to that. And yes, the, the SDK overlays is one of the ways in which the, this duality manifests itself. Um, but there are other ways as well, right? Such as, um, and, and one of the things that comes to mind is the fact that Xcode is, if for everything you want to say for it, it's a very full-featured IDE. And a lot of the primitive operations that you do uh, that relate to Swift are uh, provided for in the open, but um, you still can't build IDE-like functionality directly on top of SourceKit D, for example, right? There's a ton of coordination that happens um, at at the IDE level that... Um, it kind of makes me question, you know, like how useful are these components when um they they are done kind of half open and half closed when you know Apple itself doesn't necessarily directly just use the the open stuff um or if they do there are a lot of layers of closed stuff in between um it it really kind of dilutes some of the value that you can get out of this, right? Like, you're not going to see a tutorial for saying, like, here's how you can build IDE-like functionality on top of SourceKit. And this is why uh, SourceKit LSP is extremely promising.
0: Well, this kind of makes me think if uh, it would be really interesting if, for example, Xcode was kind of like continuously delivered uh, based on the iterations of Swift itself. So imagine a world where a change get merged from Swift uh, or in Swift in the language itself or in the compiler, and then immediately, like, the next day, there's a new version of Xcode already with that feature embedded, like, kind of continuously delivered uh, to the developers. Uh, What do you think about that? Would that kind of... Kind of solve this issue in a way, or kind of address it, or would that just be a terrible idea?
2: So this already sort of exists with the toolchains menu because uh, swift.org/downloads hosts um, nightly builds of the entire Swift toolchain, which doesn't just include the Swift compiler, but uh, standard library, um, tooling, source kit, etc. Um, but of course, you only have. The, the open components of that, right? There are no kind of closed source additions that are also kind of pushed on demand that would say like make use of, um, something, something that happened on the tooling side. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's what I think would be
0: potentially interesting, potentially scary if like even we could if, if for example we could submit a new version of our app to the App Store using a new language feature of Swift that was released yesterday, you know? <laughs> that that could be interesting/scary. What do you think, Jesse?
1: Yeah, I'm more on the scary side of that. <laughs> <laughs> and based on uh, the folks at Apple that I'm friends with, that I've talked to, uh, we probably don't want to be using uh, nightly builds of Xcode. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think just like any project, nightly builds can be very unstable, um, and I think uh, it'd probably make for a frustrating uh, workday to, to be on nightly builds. Uh, but it is, it is an interesting idea. Yeah, what I feel like is happening is that uh, Apple is kind of deconstructing Xcode and pulling out all of these pieces of it to open source um, rather than open sourcing the full IDE, which I think will probably never happen. Um, but at least we have access to, you know, some of these pieces. Yeah, totally. All
0: right, let's move on now to your topic, Jesse, but before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank this episode's sponsor, back for one last time this year, it's my good friends at Bitrise. Now, I've talked about Bitrise quite a lot this year, and for good reason. It's quite simply my favorite continuous integration service. If you don't yet use continuous integration, or you're currently maintaining your own solution, I really recommend that you check Bitrise out. How about starting 2019 with fast and hassle-free continuous integration with Bitrise? The thing about continuous integration is that it will let you and your team move so much faster and reduce the amount of time that you need to spend on things like manual testing, code reviews, and debugging. because. Before any change is merged into master, Bitrise will automatically build your app, run all of your tests and even do an archive and send beta builds to your whole team and it's all automatic and taken care of. You just push your change to GitHub and Bitrise takes care of the rest. Now, normally this type of stuff takes hours and hours to set up and it can be really frustrating. And even worse is that every time a new Xcode version comes out, things tend to break. But with Bitrise, things are very different. First of all, they support a massive list of different Xcode versions. And as soon as Apple releases a new one, it's pretty much supported right away. So if you have old code in Swift 3, for example, it's not a problem because Bitrise will build that too. You just select the tool chain you wish to use, and that's it. And there are no complex config files to worry about. You don't have to change your project in any way, none of that stuff. Just create a Bitrise account for free, and they will set up everything for you without modifying any of your code. And then you can use their super nice, recently redesigned dashboard to get a nice overview of your app or even multiple apps if you have that, and you can manage everything using this super nice web UI. You can connect third-party tools like Fastlane and SwiftLint, and you can even run custom scripts as well. You can push directly to App Store Connect. There's just so much power here. You can even use it for your open source project if that's what you want to do. And all of this is available to you right from the Bitrise web interface. So check out Bitrise today by going to go.bitrise.io swift To sign up for Bitrise for free and to help support this show. Thanks so much again to Bitrise for sponsoring this show multiple times throughout this year, which really has made it possible for me to do this entire season. So if you've enjoyed this season of Swift by Sundell, make sure to give Bitrise a little holiday thank you by going to go.bitrise.io slash Swift. All right, Jesse,
1: what topic have you got for us? Uh, I think uh, it'd be interesting to discuss uh, maintaining open source projects uh, in Swift and how that, you know, differs from what we've, um, you know, the the maintenance of Objective-C projects before. Yeah. For me, I think there's always this, uh, there's always the burden of, ios moving pretty fast you know you have pretty you have annual releases um things are deprecated more often now more quickly uh there's always been the question of okay i have this ios framework that's open source you can get it via cocoapods how many ios versions do i support for this thing um just the most recent two, more than that, like who's using this on what versions of iOS, etc. I've had projects where I've supported much more than what I needed personally, you know, which creates a, a maintenance burden. Um, but now, one thing that I've struggled with over the, the past few years, even though it's gotten much better, is okay, now we have iOS versions. Now we also have Swift versions. How do I maintain this project? Do I just cut things uh, immediately um, and go to the latest Swift version? Do I maintain multiple Swift versions? Um, And I think JP has struggled with this on some projects as well. Yeah, it's a really, really good
0: question and big challenge. Because one thing you mentioned earlier was... You know, you might start out a lot of open source projects, but after a while you, you kind of run out of time because not only might your time be limited because of your, your day job and, you know, your personal life, but also if you are already maintaining n number of open source projects, that maintenance takes quite a lot of time. So yeah, it's a really interesting question. Uh, what do you think, JP? What has been your kind of uh, biggest challenges in in terms of maintaining open source projects in Swift, and how have you kind of addressed them?
2: Yeah, uh, well, when Jesse came or mentioned the topic, um, I was like, "Well, what does in Swift have to do with anything?" You know, like right. <laughs> maintaining open source <laughs> projects. You know, what, what what's different about maintaining Swift ones? And I do think uh, that both of you have brought up some good points about the fact that the language is constantly evolving and um it's also uh bringing with it breaking changes even uh even with all the effort that goes into avoiding breaking changes um things like introducing a result type is going to cause uh code that used to compile with swift 4.2 to not compile with swift 5 right and and these are conscious decisions and they're probably for the best but it does mean that uh you know, they add up and so you go back like two years and try to compile something with a recent version of the Swift compiler, you're going to have to dig through quite a few fix and quite a few, uh, issues where sometimes the migrator alone is, isn't enough to do. So as a maintainer, you know, do you, do you choose to, um, uh, take on that burden so that your users don't necessarily have to. And I think it's, there's no right answer there. I think it depends for each project um i know in the past when i was working at realm where uh we we actually had some very minimal um anonymous analytics that were sent as part of the xcode build phase uh or actually no as as part of running only in the simulator completely anonymous and and uh, one of the things that we were measuring is the swift version or the language version that was being used uh, for, for the framework. And this was instrumental in helping us de- determine whether or not we should, uh, deprecate a previous version of Swift or not. And it turned out, at least at the time, uh, I haven't checked, um, or I haven't had access to those analytics in, in over a year or two. But at the time, um, it, it was surprising how many people were still on older Swift versions. And so for us at Realm at the time, it made total sense to support, um, like a year or two back of Swift versions. Um, now, of course, this doesn't necessarily mean that it, that's the case for uh, any number of other open source projects, uh, but it is a decision that you have to take on as a maintainer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I guess it all comes down to a couple of different kind of variables here. Like number one is like what what is the nature of the open source project, right? Like is it just a one person kind of thing that you're maintaining on the side? Is it a product? Is uh, are there you know people working full time on it? And depending on those variables, you know, you might have more or less resources to devote to backwards compatibility. So for me, for example, uh, most of my open source projects are just maintained by me and there are contributors and they're helping out. And that's really amazing. Uh, But most of it kind of falls down to me when it comes to just like the overall maintenance uh, and, and maintaining the Swift language versions. So... I've, I've been quite aggressive when it comes to kind of moving my projects forward and uh, using semantic versioning to say, okay, the next major version of this project, you know, version four or five, will drop support for the previous Swift version. And uh, if you are still using the previous Swift version, you can still keep using that, you know, that semantic version of, of the package. But if you want to upgrade to the latest version, you will also need to kind of move along your Swift version, uh, which, you know, it's not something everyone can do, but at least that semantic versioning kind of enables you to kind of make that decision.
2: Yeah. And and that's really a fine approach. uh, And it's probably something that makes sense for most open source projects. But uh, I do want to just urge listeners, if you do maintain an open source project, to just ask yourself the question, you know, what is the burden of continuing to maintain uh, a previous Swift version? And in, in my experience for a lot of projects that burden really isn't too high where if you have if you have access to a CI system that is free for open source projects which there are several where you can specify what version of xcode that you're using for example um, you know you can continue to test your project on ci for those versions and then if you add uh, just a handful of shims to whatever um, APIs that you're calling into that have changed over time, then uh, you're really localizing some of this debt, if you will. Um, and, and think for you know, every user of your project that is encountering kind of a swift version change, um, that really kind of multiplies the amount of effort that uh, needs to be put into to like update a project, for example. Um, so just just to ask yourself those questions, and it's quite possible that the answer is going to be, yes, be aggressive in only supporting the latest version, use semantic versioning, um, but it may not be, and it's worth just asking yourself that question.
1: Yeah,
0: that's a really, really good point.
1: Yeah, and that's the approach that I've uh, taken, the same one as John, which is to just be aggressive and adopt... Uh, the latest version, but that's also what made the most sense for most of my uh, projects. Um, but the other thing I wanted to touch on, which John uh, mentioned a second ago, is semantic versioning, uh, which Swift versions do not follow. All right, right. <laughs> uh, which has also been a challenge because it doesn't follow semantic versioning. And sometimes things are officially breaking changes. Sometimes they aren't officially breaking changes. Uh, And no matter what, there's always like unofficial subtle things that will break code in a new Swift version because a bug was fixed that was uh, allowing invalid code to compile in the first place. So you have like all these weird... Uh, cases where um it's really hard to determine uh what is happening between swift versions if it's like actually breaking or not and then the real question is okay my open source library do i make this a uh breaking change uh for my semantic versioning or not um and i've done both actually uh most of the time, I would just bump to a new major version. Um, but there have been a couple times where I just do a point release.
0: Yeah, because releasing a new major version feels like such a big deal, right? It almost feels like you should have a party or something when you're releasing a new right. version, major version. Uh, One thing I will say also that I think has helped this problem and that has allowed uh, maintainers to move a little bit more aggressively forward is that the Swift compiler has had a backwards compatibility mode for a while now, where, for example, if your app is structured more around frameworks and you, let's say you're using a couple of different dependencies, uh, you've been able to say, okay, for this dependency, I actually want to stick with the Swift 3 version uh, of the compiler because they haven't updated this dependency yet. And that has been a huge help for me when I've been, you know, my, pretty big projects that have had lots of dependencies to say okay these uh, five dependencies they have been updated to swift 4.2 uh, but the other ones you know used to fall back the backwards compatibility mode for those
1: yeah that was a massive help for me as well uh, and it also reduces the burden on uh, maintainers uh, to give them more time to to migrate their own projects uh, without people uh you know, breathing down your neck and filing tons of GitHub issues on you uh, to <laughs> yeah. migrate your project quickly because it's breaking their project. Um, they could they could do that, and uh, you'd have a bit more time to migrate slowly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I do wonder how the story will change when uh, Swift is ABI stable. Because um, you'll definitely have, whether you like it or not, you, you'll have <laughs> your, your version of uh, your, your built dependency running on uh, different Swift versions. And maybe this is more of a, a language consideration, than, but, but there are some uh, library evolution concerns to keep in mind. So I'm just curious uh, to see if when Swift is ABI stable, if people shift their mentality around this a little bit.
0: Hopefully it will make uh, us feel more like we're writing code that can kind of stand the test of time, because right now, you know, I think everyone has this approach where we kind of know that we're going to have to change this code quite quickly or, you know, it won't won't be around for many, many years. And I think, you know, having that mindset of writing code that will stand a test of time is usually good. And I really hope that we can get there uh, fairly soon. All right, so for our next topic, uh, I want to talk a little bit about code reviews, uh, because this is something that most developers are doing on a kind of daily basis, where you are helping someone else kind of review their code, give them some suggestions and things like that before you merge it into master. So I want to hear for you, uh, what do you think are the biggest values of doing code reviews? Like, how, how, how does it help you kind of catch errors? And what do you focus on when you do a code review?
1: For me, I think code reviews are uh, mostly, uh, well, I guess twofold. Like there's a learning opportunity for you to uh, improve something uh, that could be better. Uh, And it's just a good time to get someone else's eyes to catch, um, you know, small mistakes you may have made. Um, You know, maybe using the wrong variable, Somewhere, uh, if you have like similarly named local variables and, you know, depending on what you're doing, you know, those little stupid mistakes that you could overlook where everything runs fine and seems to act fine in most cases, but, you know, you've introduced this minor bug. Um, so for me, I think, you know, th- those are the, the two big things. And I think focusing on, you know, structure and implementation over, um, you know, style and spacing is, is important as well.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: You know, you should have a linter to, to deal with that stuff so you don't have to do it in code review.
0: If only someone on this podcast wrote a linter that we could use. I know, I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then the uh, the last thing for me that I try to keep in mind when reviewing code and when being reviewed is that it's the code that we're reviewing, not the author yeah. Um and I think if your whole team keeps that mindset, uh things will, you know, be much more um uh, amicable in those reviews. Uh it's easy for people to um you know, get their feelings hurt or start attacking the author um instead of uh just being critical of the code itself. Um, you know and there's that recent thing uh, I mean the case in point here is like you know Linus Torvald's just like berating people on the Linux kernel mailing list for being or for quote writing stupid code and for quote being idiots uh, but he recently uh, wrote an email or blog post like basically going back on all of that uh, saying how his behavior, All these years has been like totally wrong, um, which I found surprising but uh, good. (laughs) So, yeah, absolutely. It's very important to keep these things
0: productive, right? And uh, starting to like attack someone or, you know, be mean or something really doesn't help. Like, (laughs) it really doesn't make the code better. It's just, it's hurtful. And I think, yeah, when we are having these discussions, especially when it's just online, just using text boxes, I think it's important to keep those things in mind, definitely.
1: And especially for open source projects too.
2: Yeah, when you don't know the people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on that note, you know, generally it's good internet etiquette to just be nice to people. Uh, it shouldn't be that hard, <laughs> but especially yeah. so when, uh, someone is, is kind of putting themselves out there, right? They're putting a piece of themselves. They've put in work clearly, uh, even if you as a reviewer don't think that they necessarily did, like you can't tell the amount of work that went into, uh, getting even a small, trivial, you know, if you think that it's small, trivial, or even wrong, uh, maybe that person put in a lot of time, right? And so you're, you're especially vulnerable if, if you're contributing to open source, but that it's especially important to be, uh, considerate and, and nice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I always try to keep in mind is uh, to not only point out kind of flaws or areas of improvement, but to also give praise because uh, we're not doing code criticism, right? We're doing code review, which means it's great to point out, you know, here's where you use this variable incorrectly, or, you know, this pattern could be improved, or have you tried using this other API instead? And also to try to phrase kind of those suggestions as questions and, you know, really suggest Instead of like you know really pushing your own opinion too strong, uh, but also to say nice things, to say you know oh that that's a great unit test or thanks for fixing this uh, this this uh, legacy code or thanks for removing that singleton or something like that, and really trying to also promote these good practices because doesn't in, doesn't in general like my approach to things is that I usually like to promote best practices rather than uh, you know talk down on what I think is bad because. If you promote what's good, the the bad stuff kind of disappears over time and the the good stuff kind of takes over anyway. So, that's that's in general my approach that I I try to follow as much as I can.
2: Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, I just want to add uh, one more thing on on the discussion code review. Um and I think it it extends what both of you said, um but it's really how do we get consistent, you know, how do we set up a process where you can get consistently good reviews, right? uh whether that's for an open source project or at your company um you know you don't just kind of want to have a good one off review you you'd like that to be the norm right and i think some of the ways in which you can do that is definitely to apply uh some some of the tips that you just shared but it's also um uh i think part partly on automation to If if there's anything that should be done uh, for every pull request or for almost every pull request, right, and whether that's kind of maintaining a consistent code style or that's having uh, a consistent uh, documentation um, approach, right, or unit tests or or things like that, adding something in a change log, for example, Um, automating that as much as possible will kind of gently nudge code reviewers into focusing on the other stuff, which is uh, arguably more important and ultimately why we need humans to participate in code <laughs> review, right? Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I I'd strongly encourage is, is to think of if there's anything that um, can be automated, especially in code review. Then it probably should. Um, that way, and anything that uh, kind of gets uh, gets you style nits or like nits on process isn't coming from a human. It's coming from a bot, which tends to. Uh, feel a lot better because you're not being, like, attacked or critiqued, rather, by a person, but rather just by a machine, and programmers are kind of used to that already. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're used to the compiler screaming at us in an obscure
0: error-like language, so yeah, (laughs) absolutely. All right, so JP, you're gonna have the honors of uh, doing the last topic on this holiday
2: special, so um, what is your last topic for this episode? Right. The last topic that I have is um, really a question to both of you, and that's um, what upcoming Swift 5 feature has you most excited? All right. So who's going to pick result type first? (laughs) (laughs) uh,
1: Result type is definitely on my list. Uh, Not necessarily because I make super heavy use of results, even though uh, result types, even though I do. I have a couple in my uh, open source libraries. Uh, For me, it's more about finally having this type just in the standard library so no one has to use uh, the various third-party libraries that exist. We can just kind of standardize on this one thing. Uh, and also, so we can stop talking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or even
0: worse, having to convert between like five different result types from five different libraries, right? Yes, Where like your exactly. futures promises library uses one result type and then your networking library uses another. So you have to have this glue in between like right. to, to say ass, uh, you know, and, and then a type and glue that. So yeah, I'm happy also that we're unifying now on a standard implementation of it.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: Uh, What has me the most excited, I think, is uh, besides result type, is all the changes that are going into string literals. So uh, there's a bunch of new features about um, string literals. For example, we will now be able to use so-called raw strings, which is... uh, When we want to use a string and we have lots of like special characters in there, for example, we have quotation marks or backslashes or something. And this is very common if you are, for example, you're writing some unit tests and you want to test like your, you have some HTML parsing that you want to test. For example, it's very common to, to have lots of those special characters. And now we'll be able to say with a little hashtag in front of the string literal, we'll be able to say, treat this as just a raw string, no special characters or no, not nothing, nothing of the sort. And uh, th- that I think is really cool. And there's also new things also about interpolation as well. So we'll be able to do more powerful string interpolation. So uh, I'm always happy when there's new string stuff because you know every single app on the planet uses strings. So I think that's great. It'd be really hard to write uh, a valuable Swift program that doesn't use st- strings. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be a good challenge. It all comes down to strings and numbers, right? That's what all programs are made of
1: at the end of the day. We'll we'll leave that as an exercise for the listeners.
0: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely.
2: (laughs) Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't share the fact that Swift Unwrapped covered... Two uh, episodes specifically on uh, the topics that we just talked about, where raw strings is covered in episode sixty-seven, and the result type is is episode sixty-nine. Absolutely, we'll put a link to both of those in the show notes,
0: so make sure to check them out.
1: Also, somewhat related to strings uh, is the there are a couple different uh, proposals on adding uh, character properties, uh, like some Unicode improvements, and then the character properties. proposals So you can do things like say is emoji, is ASCII, uh, is white space. Uh, whereas right now, um, a lot of that you have to kind of do manually, uh, or there are some like foundation APIs you can use. Um, but that's something that I think I'll uh, use uh, pretty heavily. I think a lot of this new string stuff is just like minimizing
0: boilerplate, right? Where in Swift 2 or 3, you know, we had to write all this boilerplate to even you know, check the length of a string. <laughs> and uh, now you know, some of those things are implemented as convenience APIs. And what I like about that is that they're implemented in a way where it's easier to use, but it's still retaining that strong UTF-8 type safety under the hood that Swift strings have, which you know, is a really great quality.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, and these, uh, the, the properties to kind of uh, dig into uh, the underlying uh, UTF-8 representation and having these more semantic uh, uh, convenience APIs, you know, like is whole number, is currency, symbol, etc., cetera, uh, are super useful, I think. And what about you, JP? What's your uh,
0: favorite or most anticipated upcoming feature in Swift 5?
2: Well, I love how the two of you really focused on like the biggest banner features and I I
1: like to go first.
2: (laughs) So it's fair. Um, so, so I will cheat a little bit in that Swift 5 will enable this, but it's not necessarily part of the language. Um, I'm extremely excited for SourceKit LSP, which will be, uh, available starting with Swift 5. And, um, I really do think that, uh, that'll enable a new kind of era of, Openness and cross compatibility for Swift tooling, um, and especially Swift development, especially cross platforms. Uh, so I'm I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that's going to be really cool. I, I really
0: love the fact that now, uh, starting with these kind of things with the uh, LSP implementations, uh, we'll be able to write our own editors that actually use the proper auto completion and have third party editors such as Visual Studio Code support them kind of out of the box. I think it's going to be incredibly powerful, especially for Swift on the server.
2: Yeah, spoken as someone who uh, knows how to implement a Swift editor. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm going
0: to to be able to delete a lot of my code, which I always like when I can do it. Hey, that's in keeping with
2: the theme of
0: uh, less code is better. Exactly. Exactly. More code is more problems. (laughs) Exactly. That's my bumper sticker. I want to ask you a follow-up question, which is: There's a new feature also in Swift Five called dynamic callable, and this is the latest in a series of kind of more dynamic features added to Swift, mostly to be able to support bridging to languages like Python and JavaScript. So how do you feel about these dynamic features where soon we'll be able to even call methods and things in a more dynamic fashion? Uh, Do you feel like this is something that kind of fits into Swift or do you feel like it's something that's kind of tacked on top?
2: Uh, So I think it should be very cautiously and rarely used, um, but that it does enable some nice syntactic sugar uh, for things that would otherwise just be too um, too unsightly to use, right? And so Python interop um, or interop with other dynamic languages does fit fairly well here um, just because the alternatives are, are worse. But I just wouldn't jump to this as the first solution for really anything. Um, I would try to design something in maybe a slightly more type-safe way uh, whenever possible. Yeah, I think those features are really
1: interesting. Um, but my perspective is that the the primary motivation there is um, it's a way to uh, push or encourage uh, Swift adoption even more by saying, look, you can still use all these good libraries in these other languages because we have this really good interop story in Swift and um, so, if you want to use all of these really nice NLP frameworks in Python, you can still do that, and you can still write Swift. It could also be really interesting for tooling
0: and things like this, and to write more kind of meta level code. And yeah, I'm definitely going to explore these things to see, uh, you know, what you can do with them. But it kind of feels a little bit like, you know, in, in Objective C, there was always this discussion around associated objects. You know, and some people, they, they were making heavy use of associated objects and macros and these kind of things. And some people, they just kind of completely banned them from their code base. And I feel like with these kind of features, we might end up with similar discussions where, you know, in a pull request talking about code reviews, right? Someone adds like something with dynamic callable, and then there's this whole flame war, <laughs> you know, starting, which is, you know, should we or should not, should we not open that Pandora's box?
2: Yeah, and that's a really good analogy. The analogy to to associated objects in the Objective C runtime or, or method swizzling is another one where it, it has its place and time. Yeah. Um, but you should really be very aware of the downsides and um carefully consider alternatives. Like especially in the dynamic callable case. If you're trying to say like you know, one of the potential use cases is uh if you're writing bindings for um for a database and you don't necessarily know what columns are in the database at compile time it, but an alternative there's so many other alternatives that might that have different trade-offs um, like for example code generation co- coming from like your database schema using something like sorcery or something that you've hand-rolled yourself has a different set of trade-offs but does win you a little bit more code safety where you can't accidentally type like the wrong property name that doesn't match to anything uh, at the expense of a little bit more um, complex build system or code generation, right? So it's just worth considering the alternatives, Alright, so that
0: was our last main topic for this episode. So to wrap up this show and to wrap up the holiday special, uh, we want to continue with the tradition that was started last year, which is that we will send our wishes to Xcode Santa. And Xcode Santa, he is traveling all around the world, uh, you know, to all the developers who have written their unit tests and eaten their vegetables and to give them what they want next WWDC. So there's a little bit of a delay with the Santa. Like, you don't get the, the gift right away you have to wait until June next year but uh, it's still worth uh, sending your wishes to Xcode Santa of course so I want to hear first off Jesse what wish will you send to Xcode Santa this year what would you like to happen next WWDC
1: yeah uh, for me I think one of the big things I like to see is uh, Xcode being more open for extension Uh, back in the day Xcode had uh, you know, you could write Xcode plugins. Uh, that whole thing was not super well maintained. There's uh, some issues with it, but that was killed in favor of uh, the more formal extension API, which is currently very limited. And if you've ever used VS Code or Sublime Text or any of these other editors that have this very vibrant ecosystem. Um, of packages or plugins, um, where you can really build your own tools for uh, your editor, um, you, you'll you'll come back to Xcode and wish you had something similar. Um, so I would definitely like to see uh, Xcode move more toward that. Um, and you know, some of the the things we've talked about uh, today might. Help open that up, like the LSP uh, framework. Um, so, well, that'll help other editors. But uh, yeah, you know, if if Xcode adopts this in some way, uh, then maybe that could open up doors for us to extend Xcode, uh, you know, in a better way. Yeah, it definitely
0: evens the playing field, right? Like uh, it makes sure that Xcode is using kind of the same tool chain, which it already is in many aspects, but especially com- when in regards to code completion, as other editors can as well. So you get more like a unified editing experience, no matter which editor you choose. Mm-hmm.
1: And it'd be great if you could, uh, let's say, write um, you know packages that could be used for Xcode and any other editor.
2: So I'm going to piggyback on that because that was exactly, or, or this is getting to my wish for Xcode Santa. Uh, and I've been trying to write my unit tests for you. So hopefully this <laughs> happens. Um, where if Xcode gained first class support for LSP so that, uh, not only could, um, could you use the source get LSP and therefore, um, kind of reduce some of that closed, closed source Um, interface into the Swift uh, tooling that we talked about earlier um, and kind of upstream that into something more open and more standard like SourceKit LSP. So that would be great. But if if Xcode has first-class support for LSP, you could also develop for other languages in Xcode um, in the same way uh, that you would for Swift or Objective-C or or the C languages, right? Like if you wanted to use Xcode for Rust, for example, right, and tap into some of the nice aspects of Xcode as an IDE, well, Rust has LSP support. Um, so it'd be nice to not have to switch between editors as much um, or IDEs as much if Xcode, again, moved to uh, have first-class LSP support and moved some of its currently closed-source wrappers around SourceKit and SwiftC into more of an open standard uh, uh, place like SourceKit LSP.
0: Yeah, that'd be really fantastic. And then you could probably also write your own kind of middleware, right? Where you could like inject your own tooling into your tool chain and run something like SwiftLint, uh, not as a uh, kind of script phase, but as a first class citizen in the IDE.
2: Right. Or, or maybe a better fit there would be code generation. Cause that, right. You know, that needs, that's, you know, a linter can be done kind of out of band. It doesn't really affect the built pro- product directly. Uh, but code gen definitely does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and right now it's kind of tricky if you want to have like a required code gen step. Like, for example, you can't do that with Swift package manager where there's no concept of build phases, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and more on that. You know, this this is kind of a stretch goal because um, Xcode does a lot, and it does a lot that uh, the language server protocol spec does not um, specify. Right? Doesn't define support, for example, even for basic syntax highlighting, and that's in in the process of being added. But wouldn't it be great if Apple was pushing the spec forward? And in order to meet this goal, they actually kind of improved. LSP in general, so that, um, you know, everyone could benefit from this, that that would really be uh, a very good gift. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, I hope that they would do that in a way where they would actually, you know, make those changes upstream and actually, you know, still follow the spec and not create like an Apple flavored LSP. uh, Because that would just create more fragmentation. But yeah, hopefully that will happen. Uh, My wish for Xcode Santa is um, something that I think a lot of people are thinking about. uh, And one thing that I've been doing lately is doing more and more work on my iPad... And uh, I would love for Xcode Santa to bring me Xcode on iPad next year. And uh, you know, when you're thinking about Xcode on iPad, you know, you you I don't know if I want the full Xcode, like the whole thing. I would probably like a more kind of streamlined version of it because the iPad is great for a certain amount of tasks, but it's not you know, a replacement for the Mac for me. Like, I I still love to work on the Mac, but more and more tasks I want to do on the iPad because I really like the kind of lightweightness of iOS and and the work that I can do there. Uh, But I would love to be able to write more sophisticated code on the iPad than I can with Swift Playgrounds, which it's very clear when you use Swift Playgrounds that it was written for education. And that's great. Like, it's, it's amazing that there's an app on the iPad that people can use to learn how to code. But I think there needs to be a different app for people who are already know how to code and just want to get work done. And uh, to do this with Swift playgrounds right now is a little bit like an uphill battle. And I would love to see more, like a more
2: sophisticated IDE
0: uh, for Swift on
2: the iPad. Absolutely, I would love that. And that that would probably convince me to to actually buy an iPad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So uh, that's all of our wishes.
0: We're gonna package them up. We're gonna put out some binary cookies for Xcode Santa, and hopefully our wishes will come true. Uh, but that's it for this episode, this holiday special. So I want to thank both of you, JP and Jesse, so much for joining me on
1: this special episode. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so uh, if people want to check out your show, they want to check out the work that you've been doing, uh, open
1: source, etc., and find you online. Where should they go? Uh, You can find me, uh, Jesse underscore Squires, on Twitter, um, or jessiesquires.com
2: for my blog and everything else. You can find me on Twitter, at SimJP. And the show is also on Twitter, Swift underscore Unwrapped. Perfect.
0: And uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell. And you can find the show notes for this episode at swiftbysundell.com slash podcast slash 39. Thank you so much to Bitrise for sponsoring this episode. Uh, And thank you so much, everybody, for listening. This is the end of season two of the show. But don't worry, this show will be back again early next year, the last week of January in 2019 for the third season. So all that remains is for me to thank you so much, everybody, for this whole season. And I wish you a really happy holidays and a fantastic new year. So thank you so much, and I'll talk to you in the next season. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.